0: Feedback. The fact that life can exist so deep in the ocean—he said it was over a half a mile beneath the surface—even uh, it's it's beyond the reach of the sunlight. So the sun doesn't penetrate as far as this life is. Uh, this is just uh, one of the many amazing aspects of God's creation. The narrator describes this life. Uh, just this spot of barren seabed where there's nothing down there because there's no sun, so no plants or animals can grow until you get to this place, and it's just this oasis in the midst of a barren ocean floor. So towards the end of the video, if you notice, the narrator said that life here, when compared to another place of the seabed, can can enjoy a more stable ecological environment. Now today, we know that a half mile below the Gulf of Mexico, uh, there's really no such thing as a stable economic environment, Uh, unless you've been living under a rock for the last three months. You've heard about the BP oil spill. Uh, They have dumped about five million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. And obviously, we don't really know what five million barrels of oil looks like, but This is the largest oil spill, ocean oil spill in history. So it's a pretty significant event. We're not really sure how it's gonna affect life in the sea or life on land for probably another 20 years. The uh, Exxon Valdez oil spill, which occurred back in I think 89 or uh, early 80, somewhere in there. uh, We still don't know how much it has affected the environment. So I say all that not to uh, tell you that I'm against some big oil or anything like that, but because this uh, environmental disaster is a picture of what happens in creation. If we were to send s- these BBC film crews back to the Gulf and have them go down to this place they were at before and document what's happened since that time, I mean, we don't know what it would look like. There may be oil everywhere. They may not be able to see anything. It may not be that bad. I mean, nobody really knows. but. The fact remains that it was a disaster of just amazing proportions. This isn't the first time that man, humanity, men and women, have polluted the environment. Shortly after God in Genesis declares his creation that he's just created is very good, man proceeds to disobey God and pollute God's environment with sin. Eve, Adam and Eve's original act of disobedience resulted in man's fall. Uh, they're being kicked out of the garden, and the fact that our world is now fallen, it's corrupted, pretty much every aspect of our lives, every aspect of the world we live in is affected by man and women's, woman's first choice. So today, tonight, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to see how God creates the world, and we're going to pull out some important features that we need to see in the text. And then we're going to go ahead to Genesis 3, where we see man's fall and that creation that lasted for a brief two chapters destroyed. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 1. And I realize that it's going to be a long chapter. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the ones at the end of the pew. And if you're using an ESV Bible... Uh, Genesis 1 will be on page 1, so that makes it really easy to find. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So, at the very beginning, I want to just say that uh, Genesis 1 is uh, one of the most complex passages of Scripture. Uh, we don't have time today, tonight, to get into all the debates which surround exactly how God created the earth and how long it took and just the many, many things philosophers like to think up to talk about with creation. If you want to talk about those things, Uh, I'm sure Jerry would like to have lunch with you. So instead, we're going to look at some more important things that we'll see in the text. There are three main things that we need to see here in Genesis 1. The first is that God created everything, everything that we see created, God created out of nothing. The second is that God created the world with order. The third is that God created man in his image. So the first point, that God created everything out of nothing, we see that in verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this means that God created all that we see out of something that wasn't. It means that he spoke creation into existence. This doesn't mean that there's this nothingness, you know, somewhere back in eternity that God takes and he turns into somethingness, Uh, and I know that that's confusing. What it means is that God speaks the world into existence. He doesn't use anything to make it. A lot of other creation stories have two gods who go to war, and then one god kills the other god, and then that god's dead, uh, I guess, body becomes the earth. In other creation stories, you have two gods, and they make a life, and then when one god gives birth, they give birth to the earth. That's not how it works with uh, the Bible's picture of creation. What we see is we see God bringing forth creation through the word of his power. He speaks it into existence. And that's significant because while other gods who create, we see that the creation is like them, and and, and they're flawed because creation is flawed. Our God created a creation which is separate from him, so uh, even though we're flawed, that doesn't mean that our God is flawed. I think that's very important. We also see this taught elsewhere in Scripture. In Romans 4.17, Paul says that God calls things into existence that do not exist. When John, the the Apostle John who wrote, wrote his Gospel, talks about Christ's work in creation, he says that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what these passages teach is that there wasn't anything that existed before God created There's nothing, and then God creates. So, what we see here is that prior to his creation, only God exists. The second thing that we need to see in this passage is that this helps us uh, understand creation better. You know, a lot of times when we read this, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. I think sometimes we're tempted to see this as verse two describing what creation was like before God did everything he did in verses three through the end of the chapter. That's not the way it works. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse two described their state after God creates them. So he brings forth the heavens and the earth into existence. And then verse 2 describes them. And then verse 3, God begins ordering creation to match what we see now. So that's the second thing, that God created his creation with order. We see a pattern in Scripture. So during days 1, 2, and 3, we see God creating things which correspond to days 4, 5, and 6. So on day 1, we see that God creates a light. And then on day 4 which we should have a slide that makes sense of that. Kay. Yeah, so there we go. Day one, God creates light. Day four, God takes this light and then fashions the sun, moon, and star. So you see that the day four corresponds to day one. On day two... God creates the the sky, the heavens, and He creates, He separates the waters. So, we need to realize here that when we see heaven in verse eight, that it doesn't mean heaven where we'll go and we die or where we'll reign with God in eternity. Uh, heaven here is capitalized because it's a proper noun, not because uh, it's it's some other place we'll see the same thing in, verses, in verse 5 where we see day and night capitalized and earth capitalized in verse 10. What he means by heaven here is just sky. Literally the, the air above the ground. And so he creates heaven and separates the waters in day 2. And then day 5, he fills the sky with birds and he fills the waters with the sea creatures. In day 3, we see God create the earth. He brings up the earth from the water. And then on day 6... God fills the earth with animals, which include man. So, that was a good day for us. Now, what this tells us is not just that there's some neat arrangement to what happens in Genesis 1. What it means is that God, when he created the world, he did it with order. So, when we live in the world and we act in the world, we can expect things to happen in a certain way. This is why science and mathematics actually work. You know, if God didn't create the world with order. Two plus two wouldn't equal four all the time. We couldn't rely when we walked out of our house that gravity would be present and we wouldn't just fly into the atmosphere. So God creates with order and this is different from a lot of other creation stories like we mentioned before. I mean, it's not just coming about by chance. It's not just happening this way. God is concerned about the smallest details in creation and this is what we see here. So Before we move on to God's creation of man, which is probably the most significant thing in this passage for us, uh, it's helpful to look at a visual representation of creation, because some of this language is a bit confusing. When he starts talking about expanses in the midst of the waters and all this other stuff, we need to really try to think about what it means. So Moses, when he was writing the book of Genesis, he describes creation in the language of his day. You know, God's creation can only be described by us with our language. So Moses, when he presents creation, he presents it according to their worldview that they operated under. That's this right here. So wh- what they thought was that here we are on the earth, you know, the green disk in the middle, and we're surrounded by seas, which I mean, to them, that's what the world would have looked like. They didn't have Google Earth. They couldn't just pull it up online and figure out where they were at and, and what was around them. They could just see as far as they could walk. So there's the earth, and it's surrounded by the seas, and there's these waters below, and then above, there's the sky. And the way they viewed the sky was as it's a dome. So you can imagine like a cake dome that covers a cake. This is how they viewed the earth. They see the sky, and they think that there's something firm up there. So like when they think about the stars, and the psalmists talk about the firmament, what they think is that there's these stars up there that are fixed in this dome. And then there's these waters above the sky. And as confusing as this might be to us, imagine what they would think if we were to tell them how things really are. So when when we get to the flood next week, we'll see that when the flood begins, how Moses describes it, is that the windows in heaven are opened. And so they thought that up in the sky, on the top of this little dome thing, there's these holes. And whenever it rains, God opens up the holes, and the waters above come down on the earth. So that that's what creation is describing. This is how God uh, sets it up. I mean, he sets it up the way it is, but this is how Moses describes it. I hope that makes sense. If not, Jerry's got a cake dome back there, and he'll explain it. So let's move on to God's creation of man. We read this before, but we'll go ahead and read it again here. In in verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, God here creates man, and there are some things that we need to see here. The first is that when God creates man in his image, it's a Trinitarian decision. Now, Trinitarian is just a big fancy word that means God, as a trinity, decided it. We see this in verse 26, where God says, Let us make man in our image. Now, some people, they want to look at this verse and say, Well, God's using the plural there because he's talking about him and, you know, all the heavenly hosts. But we know that that's not true because we're created in the image of God. We're not created in the image of God and his angels or whatever else is up in heaven. We're created in the image of God, and so we have here an early testimony to the presence of the Trinity. God is a plurality, and he is deciding together with himself to create us in his image. Next, before we go ahead, what this means to be created in the image of God isn't exactly clear in the text. Now, there aren't these qualities that God spells out and says, man is created in my image in this way. He exemplifies these things, and this is how he's created. What he does do is he tells us our role in creation. And as men and women in creation, we're to act as God's uh, his vice regents, but I'm trying to think of a less hoity-toity word. Uh, we're, we're to act as God's ambassadors on the earth. He rules over the world, And he says to us, have dominion. He says, you're to lead for me upon the earth. So God delegates some of his authority to man. And it's because of this that we're created in the image of God. So when we think about what the image of God in man means, it must mean something like we're given these qualities which God possesses to some extent so that we can act as his representatives upon the earth. This is important because the rest of creation focuses on this point. The only reason why uh, we are different from the rest of creation, the only reason why uh, a person being killed versus a dog being killed, even though they're both both tragic, uh, the only reason those two are different is because man is created in the image of God. A dog is created in the image of a dog, and that's it. So they're not as important as man. Another huge aspect of man's responsibility in the world is what's called the cultural mandate. Now, you'll hear that term maybe thrown around. What it means is that God, when he creates man, and he says, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, the cultural mandate refers to man's job description in the world. It's it's what our responsibility is to the world, to the created order, because God created us in his image. So we are to govern the world as God would have governed it, because he has placed us here in that capacity. Another huge aspect of this that we often leave out is what God tells man when he places him in the garden in Genesis 2.15. What he says here is that God put man in the midst of the garden so that he can work it and keep it. Now this is significant because the words "work" and "keep" are picked up later in the Old Testament when God describes how the the priests are to function in His tabernacle. So there's this tent which represents God's present on the earth, presence on the earth. The Levites were the priests who worked and kept the temple. So these people, these Levites, are responsible to to serve as emissaries to usher in God's presence into the world, man in the garden does the same thing. They function in, in in two major functions. The first is a kingly function. We see that in the way God gives man dominion over things. So we're to rule over the earth. The second major factor is that we have a priestly function. We're to work the garden and keep it, which means that we're supposed to expand the place where God has his presence on the earth. Now, we know from the New Testament that this is picked up and applied to the Great Commission. So, in Matthew, we read that we're to make disciples of all nations. We're to go out from the earth and we're to expand Christ's kingdom, much like we were supposed to expand the garden. So, we're still God's ambassadors in the world. We still serve in uh, some sort of kingly function and we serve in a priestly function. Now, the cultural mandate does not mean that uh, when we go to Walmart or we're at our workplace that if somebody fails to accept the gospel that we put them in a headlock or an arm bar until they tap out and give in to the gospel. That's not the dominion that we're supposed to have. Instead, we're supposed to act as God's regents on the earth and to to serve the creation and act as Christ would have acted. Now, creation is is a complicated subject, and there's a whole lot in this passage, but how should we respond to creation? How should we respond to the work that God does? I think the most logical response that any of us should have when we're faced with God's creation of the world is worship. Worship. You can't read through the Psalms without seeing this all over the place. David consistently worships God for his creation. In Psalm 139, we see David praising God for the fact that God made him when he was in his mother's womb. As we see new babies born in our congregation, or as we think about how we were once a baby, and God has grown us into who we are now, we should worship God for his creative act in that process. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard the heavens, when I go outside, speak to me and tell me about the glory of God. So, the declaring must be something else. What it means is that when we're out in creation, when we're thinking about what God has done, we will be drawn to worship God for who he is. Now... The, the, this is certainly harder to do right now when it's about a thousand degrees outside and about 500% humidity, but there are things that we can do indoors. You know, we, we need to be in God's creation to see Him in it, but there's still things we can do inside. Uh, one of those, certainly my favorite thing to do, is to to learn more about creation. Now, the way one of the easiest ways we can do that is through things like uh, the Blue Planet, which was what that clip was from at the very beginning, and Planet Earth and a series called Life, which if you aren't familiar with BBC Earth, you should be because it's awesome. Uh, Nearly every time Jen and I sit down to watch something that they've done, at least like four times every five minutes, we say, that's awesome or that's amazing. Or we just sit there with our mouths hanging open and staring at the television. So if you don't know what that is, you know, we have them, you can borrow them. As you watch them, as you see these amazing things that people have got on film that have never been on film before, and you see what God has done in the creation of these animals and these plants that are just so foreign to us as we live in our tiny little cultivated environments, uh, you'll be amazed at what God has done in creation. I think the most important thing we can do is, is to spend more of our time thinking about God's creation and less time speaking about our own and thinking about our own. We're we're tempted to just, in our house, make our house exactly the way we want it or make our yard exactly the way we want it and to try to gain control over some small aspect of God's creation and make it our own. And, And that's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is we're called to go out into creation and to make it God's again because we have tried to take it from him in the fall. A second major way we respond to God's creation is by taking our role as God's ambassador in creation seriously. We don't just sit back and expect that somebody's going to come up to me when I'm sitting in a coffee shop reading the Bible and say, that guy looks like he's trying to be created in the image of God. Uh, we shouldn't do things that are going to demean God's image in us. Instead, we work to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ so that when others see us, they see him and they're drawn to worship God, just like we are when we see him in creation. We're also to share the gospel. It's only only through the preaching of the gospel that the gospel spreads, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to spread the borders of the kingdom of God. We can also do this by doing God's work in the world. Uh, One thing that we've talked about as a church is how can we be more involved in the community? One thing we can do is we can go out and we can serve. We can clean up creation in Hannibal and help other people who may not see it because of trash or whatever else see God's glory in his creation. So that's creation. And... When we come to the fall, we need to realize how significant of an event this is. I think a lot of times we just, we read Genesis 1 and 2, and then we go to Genesis 3, and we don't really realize what has happened. The fall of man is the most catastrophic event in human history. Uh, Every death, every tragedy, all bloodshed can be linked back to this one event. The fall of man is the birth of death. Before Genesis 3, there's no death. After Genesis 3, there's death. So, because of what happens there, our world is forever changed. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the creation that God created and called very good, uh, is diminished, is damaged. Us being created in the image of God is is damaged. We've, We've lost some of that image because of the sin that entered the human race. So, We've probably all heard this story many, many times. We know that what, what Adam and Eve have done, we know that God gives them a really simple command. He says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you'll die. Adam and Eve, they're tricked by the serpent, and they both eat of the fruit, and we know what happens after that. So instead of focusing on the event itself, we're going to focus on the aftermath of the fall. We see this in Genesis Genesis 3, 14 through 24. So we're going to go ahead and read this real quick. This is where God pronounces his judgment upon the serpent, the woman, and the man. And this is on page 3 of your Bibles. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this passage falls into five parts. In verses 14 and 15, we see God's judgment on the serpent. In verse 16, we see God's judgment on the woman. In verses 17 through 19, we see God's judgment on the man, on Adam. Verses 20 and 21 contain final details about the story. And then verses 22 through 24 deal with man's uh, expulsion from the garden. So let's look at these one by one. The Lord, when he curses the serpent, the first thing he does is he says that the serpent, from this point on, is going to be an accursed creature. When it says that uh, he'll go on its belly and he'll eat dust, that just means that the serpent is now a disgraced creature. Uh, I would imagine that none of us would like to be forced to crawl around on the ground and eat dirt. It's not a it's not a pleasant thing, I would imagine. The second thing that God does when he pronounces judgment on the serpent, serpent is give us a promise. Now, this promise here is significant. It is the beginning of all the hope that we have in the Messiah. Right here in Genesis 3.15, as God judges the serpent, he announces that one day a redeemer is going to come who's going to fix what man has done and put things back the way they were supposed to be. We read in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be hostility between the woman, between Eve and between the serpent, and then there's going to be hostility between her offspring and his offspring. And then finally, one of the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent is going to bruise the heel of his offspring. Now, last week, we talked about uh, J.L and the significance of her crushing the head of uh, this guy with a tent peg. If you weren't here last week, uh, what happens is in Judges, this, this woman sneaks into this guy's tent as he's sleeping. He's, he's a general of the enemies of the people of God and she grabs a tent peg and a hammer and drives it into his skull. Uh, not a pleasant thing. We also read elsewhere in Judges that there's this guy named Abimelech and uh, There's a guy named Abimelech, and he goes up to this tower, and he's trying to to take this this fort from the people of God, and this woman is on top, and she grabs this upper millstone, which would have been just a big rock, and throws it down on his head. We also know from the story of David and Goliath that David throws a stone from a sling, and it hits Goliath in the forehead. Now, all of these seem like you know, somewhat confusing, isolated accounts, but what they mean is that God's people are expressing hope in this promise. When when these events are recorded, it means that these people are are saying that these victories have occurred, and one day there's going to be another who's going to come that's going to finally bruise the head of the enemy of the people of God fatally. We also see that they're recognizing this promise by what they say in the rest of Genesis. In verse 20, when Adam names his wife Eve, Eve means life giver. He's saying that out of this one, life is going to come. Now, he doesn't mean that she's just going to have babies because any woman can do that. What he's meaning is that uh, contrary to the death that he's promised in verse 19, that from the seed of the woman is going to come one who's going to give life to mankind. We see the same thing when after Cain and Abel kill each other, Eve has another son in verse, in Genesis 4.25. She says that God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She uses the same word from Genesis 3.15. She's saying that maybe this one is the one who's going to redeem us. You see the same thing later in Genesis. In Genesis 5, when Noah is born, his father pronounces a blessing on him, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. Out of the ground the Lord out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. His father's saying that, I hope that my son is the one that's going to be this offspring who's going to give us deliverance. Now, all these things go together to to show us that the Old Testament saints here are picking up on God's promise in Genesis 3. They're saying that we know that one day God is going to send the promised Redeemer that he promised all the way back right after we fell. When God pronounces his judgment on the woman and Adam, we see that this promise is already in jeopardy. So the promise we know is going to come through childbirth. Eve is going to bear offspring, and one of these offspring someday is going to destroy the enemy. But we find out in Genesis three sixteen that God judges the woman, and He says, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children." So already, just after the promise is given, there's there's some some, some things happening where it may not come about because she's going to have pain in childbearing and in praying you will bring forth your children. Now, this pain, a lot of times we, we see this pain here and we say, okay, that's what happens when women are in labor and they're screaming. You know, We know that pregnancy, that labor and delivery is a painful thing, but that's not all that's here. The second half of the verse is talking about conception. It's not talking about just the actual birth of the child. Now, what this means is that Pain, I think more emotional pain than physical pain, comes about as a result of child conception. This is where infertility come into the human race. This is where miscarriage come in. God is saying that because of the fall, the act of bringing forth children is now corrupted. There's now problems. It'll now be harder to do these things than it was before. So he's saying that even though I've given you this promise, it's not going to be easy. Another thing that puts the promise in jeopardy is the marital relationship is given stress, as early here. We see that it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, in order to understand what this means, we have to go forward to Genesis 4-7. This is where God's talking to Cain, and he's telling him that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What God is telling Cain here is that uh, there's sin and it's trying to get him. It's trying to uh, overcome him, and he has to respond by by ruling over it, by mastering the sin. These are the same exact words that it uses with response to Eve, saying that your desire shall be for your husband, saying that a a woman, since she's cursed from the fall, is going to desire to subvert the leadership of her husband. She's going to try to overcome what God has done. And he says that the husband is going to respond by ruling over the wife. Now, we can draw out two points of application here. The first, for women, that we see here that the the natural inclination for women is going to be to go against the leadership of their husband. Now, uh, for Christian women, we know that the Holy Spirit is reversing this process so that women can lovingly submit to the leadership of their husbands. However, they can't do this if their husbands are always seeking to rule over them, and this is where the application for men come in. We need to, uh, I mean, I think that any man here would acknowledge that our natural inclinations are to, uh, to be harsh, to be mean, to, be, uh, to, to try to fight against our wife when we feel like she's trying to take some of the leadership that's rightfully ours. Instead. What we're to do is we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We're to lead them by serving them. And once we do this, when we create an environment of servant leadership so that our wives can flourish and they don't have to worry about these natural tendencies that they're going to have. Instead, they can willingly submit to male leadership that's right. When God curses man, we see two things. We see that he curses the ground and he gives death. Now the first aspect of this I had never really understood until earlier this week. Uh, My wife and I have have finally become homeowners and so I'm doing yard work on a more regular basis. On Monday I went outside when it was a million degrees and tried to edge our sidewalks. And I had uh, an electric edger that my dad let me borrow but I didn't have an extension cord. So I didn't use that. Instead, I used this manual edger, which was all rusty and it was a big pain. And so I spent hours out there going up and down the sidewalks. And when I got inside, I got these nice little blisters on my hands. And so now I understand a little bit better that this is what it would be like if I was out there working in a field every day. Thankfully, you know, we have grocery stores. We go to the store and we grab some cinnamon toast crunch off the shelf and we don't have to work the ground for it. It's just there. The other thing that we see in this text is that death enters the human race. Now, this this is the penalty that God promised back when he gave his command to man. He said, don't eat of this tree or you'll die. Now, man doesn't die immediately. It's not just like as soon as he eats the apple, uh, something like Snow White happens and man falls into a coma. What happens is that death enters the human race. From now on, every man, every woman that's born will die. Adam dies. Eve dies. All their children die. And now, in one day, unless Christ comes back first, everybody in this room will die. So, with all these things, how do we live in light of the fall. We know that the world has fallen. We experience its effects. We see things happen in the world that would only happen in the world if the the world that God created was corrupted by us. So how do we respond to this? The first thing we do is we have faith in the one who overturns the curse of the fall. We'll see as we go through the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament that many of the promises of God are focused on these specific curses that God gave man as a result of the fall. So there's things like uh, fertility increasing on the earth. God is saying that, I'm going to fix that. Uh, We hear promises of eternal life in the New Testament. God's saying, I'm going to fix that. I have an answer to these things. So we read in Romans 5... That for as one, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be ra- made righteous. Now we know that what this means is that just as death entered the human race through one man's actions, just as Adam disobeyed and death comes onto the scene, so also when Christ lived an obedient life, died a perfect sacrifice, we get his life that he can give to us, and we can experience eternal life. So, those of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation can have hope in the face of death. We don't need to fear it. We know that we will live because he lived and died. For those of us who haven't experienced this, I mean, I think that it's it's obvious that the world has fallen. We know that there isn't any hope of recovery on our own. So the only hope that we have in the face of death is through Christ, And his death on the cross, his resurrection, and the fact that he gives his life for us. If you don't know what this salvation means, or if you don't think you've ever experienced it, or you're just not sure, I'd encourage you to talk to to Michael, or Jerry, or me, or or someone else before you leave here tonight. Don't go through life fearing death, or fearing the events that are going to happen in the world. Trust in the one who's overcome the fall. The second way we live in light of the fall is by expressing hope that the things that still affect us today will one day be fixed. Last week I told you about my friends in Kentucky and the the pain that they're experiencing because of miscarriage. I told you about the fact that Jen and I have, have gone through that pain and the grief that accompanies It just so happened that when we went through our miscarriage, uh, I was writing a paper on a passage in Isaiah. And I don't really think that it just so happened. I think that God providentially had me writing a passage on that paper, writing a paper on that passage. So I just want to read the passage real quick because that will illustrate what I mean by how we hope that, that one day God will overturn the effects of the fall we still face. It's Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And in an ESV, it should be on page 624. It says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now it should be obvious to us that this hasn't happened yet. We don't see uh, wolves and lambs grazing together. Uh, if we saw that, it would be a pretty gory experience. We don't see lions eating straw like oxes. We see them uh, in really cool Planet Earth films killing animals. We also don't see uh, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or no longer will children be born for calamity. We experience these things now. We. We see uh, people give birth to stillborn babies. We see people who find out they're pregnant and are so excited about it and then are met with the news of miscarriage. So what we do in these situations, we don't say, oh, you know, it's, it's just a fallen world. We don't have any hope. What we say is, we say it is a fallen world. That's why these things are happening. But we know the one who will overturn these things. We know that one day God is going to bring these things about. We know that one day... Uh, Wolves and lambs will graze together, and lions will eat straws. We know that God is going to bring these things to pass. And just like the Old Testament saints, even though uh, they don't know as much as we know, they don't have the New Testament, they haven't seen Christ come, they haven't seen him die on the cross and being raised from the dead, uh, even though they don't know all these things, uh, our response is exactly the same. Uh, We hope in Christ, in light of his victory on the cross, And we look forward to his coming when all of these things are going to get fixed. Our only response to the creator, to creation, is worship and service. And our only response to the fall is to trust in Christ and to hope in his deliverance. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you created the world. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us to fend for ourselves, but that even before we committed our first mistake, our first sin, our first act of disobedience, you had prepared a Redeemer to come and save us. You have prepared a Redeemer who will overturn death Lord, so that we don't need to fear when we die. Lord, you have created a redeemer who, you have provided a redeemer who will give us hope in the midst of a fallen world. Lord, we ask that your spirit would would teach these truths to us. We ask that your spirit would empower us to see your glory in creation. We ask us that you would just move and work in our lives so that we are drawn more and more into your word and and drawn more and more into a loving service of you and your creation. Help us to act as your image bearers in the world. Help us to point others to Christ when tragedies come. Help us to help others and help ourselves hope in you for everything. We thank you for the the grace that we experience through faith in Christ. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just real quick, next week, we're going to be covering Noah's flood in Genesis 6 through 9.